Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Today we make another return to the UK for a fascinating conversation with Jeff Allen. Jeff is joining us today from his sailboat, Wild Rover, to share the incredible story of his 2004 expedition around Japan with Hadass Feldman. You're going to love the learnings that Jeff shares from this trip, both from a paddler's perspective and a human perspective. Now, there was a little bit of static in our connection, so my apologies. I was able to minimize it so it shouldn't detract from an otherwise great story. So enjoy today's interview with Jeff Allen. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, thank you. Wonderful. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your schedule to spend some time with us to talk a little bit about uh, about paddling. So, Jeff, tell listeners a little bit about your personal paddling background. Well, I started paddling way back when I was in the Cub Scouts, and I guess my first outing was, was on, a, on a lake, um, an old fiberglass kayak, and... We used to wear woolen jumpers in those days and three-quarter John wetsuits. And I can remember doing a capsized drill, but you, you couldn't go on the water until you'd actually completed a capsized drill. And um, yeah, absolutely loved it. It was, um, stay, that, that experience was stay with me for a long time. But before that, I'd actually taken an inflatable kayak out into the surf on the North Cornish coast. I can remember sort of paddling out through this wave and watching the wave rear up in front of me and the inflatable canoe, which was it was actually an inflatable crocodile, sort of curled in half and split and I got ejected back to the beach. And that was really my first big wow moment and it was to stay with me for a long, long time. And then after the Cub Scouts, I went to the Sea Cadets and carried on doing um, water sports there and then in the military. But I was really just sort of dipping my toes into the sport for many years until after I left the military in 1987 and I moved down to Cornwall to study traditional boat building and it was in Cornwall that I really got into into paddling and it's a, an ideal location the southwest peninsula of Great Britain sort of sticks its toes out into the Atlantic and I'd been pursuing a kind of a sailing career for a couple of years and sailboats got too big and too expensive so I went back to sea kayaking after quite a layoff and started started the journey all over again in in the late 1990s. Oh, you've certainly come a long way since that uh, inflatable crocodile. Yeah absolutely it was <laughs> um, but I think those early those early experiences they they act as a foundation for the future and I think it was Having parents that allowed me to expand out into into the natural world, you know, from an early age, we, we were very uncloseted then. You know, there wasn't so much health and safety. There wasn't so many restraints on on minors or children. I don't believe at that stage. So I yeah. think it actually enabled me to plant the seeds for later years. And that freedom to explore at an early age really made a difference for you and, and led you to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. So, Jeff, you have many fascinating adventures, and, and today I'd love to learn a little bit more about your circumnavigation of Japan. So, tell us a little bit about the the, the backstory of that trip. Well, I, I called that expedition um, post expedition. I called it Karma Waters because it it did seem to be a very karmic series of events. I'd just come out of a a, a very dysfunctional twenty three year marriage, 
which had ended in divorce and I was on my own and I was I was thinking what do I do now I was feeling exceptionally depressed I was probably borderline suicidal really and I guess on an emotional level I'd pretty much gotten to the bottom of a of a very dry barrel and I, I needed to find something that gave me life again and I'd been paddling for five years again by that stage and the place where I was finding my most serene moments, my most clear moments, was when I was on the water paddling down a section of coastline. And the boundary was always the end of a day or the end of a weekend or that distant headland. So I was always thinking, well, I wonder what lies beyond that weekend paddle or what lies beyond that headland. And being in a in an emotional state of total disrepair, I, I decided to return back to a dream that I'd had when I was 15 years old, which was to travel to Japan to study Zen Buddhism. I'd always been fascinated with spirituality, especially Asian spirituality, Buddhism in 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 prime focus, I guess, as a as a young lad. So I decided to combine. A journey which I wanted to do when I was just leaving school at 16, which was to travel to Japan. But instead of going over there to study Buddhism, I would actually go over there to explore the islands of Japan. And my newfound passion was sea kayaking. And I decided to do that as a, as a journey to recovery, really. So so where give me a kind of a linear progression through the trip. Where did you put in and... I'm guessing you just kept land on one side and paddled around. <laughs> yeah, we, um, we 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 weren't too sure exactly where we were going to go from and to. We knew that the, the kayaks were being delivered to Narita Airport. And when we got there, quite naively, we thought we would be able to pick up the kayaks, hire a car and drive to the coastline. But the customs wouldn't release the kayaks to us in the airport and we had to find a delivery address. So we went to the, the nearest um, tourist desk and we said, can you give us a name of a, of a marina that's nearby? And they came up with a place called Marina Kazazima, which was in Yokosukashi, just south of Yokohama. We didn't realize how far it was. It was a good few hours away from the airport. But we eventually managed to find this marina that agreed to accept delivery on our behalf. And the next day, our kayaks arrived and we flipped a coin on whether we were going to go north or south and initially north came up and we spoke to the locals and they said well you can't go north because the seas around Hokkaido and northern Honshu and they freeze over in the winter months and this was January beginning of January in 2004 so we were forced into going south and we set off from Marina Kazazima on the 4th of January and started paddling southwards. The journey itself, we only had one chart and that chart extended north and south about 400 miles. And then once that chart ran out, we were gonna to have to be picking up charts and maps along the way. We eventually resorted to just using a road map really. So when you jokingly say, did we just keep land on our right hand side? Well, that is pretty much what we did. I, I call it a, a lesson from Neptune really because it's where I really learned to read water and to read the effect of wind on water 
and that is because it assisted us in the navigation so well just to getting to understand how how tides worked and how the currents worked and shifted in the winter time to the summertime so it was a, yeah it was, a, it was a great journey of discovery not just on a geographical scale but also on a internal emotional landscape as well so how did you uh, how did you do any any advanced research on the trip I did start to do some research. I was working for um, Falmouth Marine School, which was part of the Cornwall College Network, and I was teaching sea kayaking um, for this organisation. So it gave me ample access to the internet and to be able to research. But the problem was, the more research I did on the expedition, the more I started to get cold feet. So, um, for instance, it, it receives up to 20 typhoons a year um, it has 108 active volcanoes and receives 360 plus major earth tremors every year. So the more I started to read about just what a land of extremes it was, the more I started to put myself off a journey. So I actually started, um, I started to research it, but then I decided to stem the research and, and just look into the practicalities of getting my equipment over there and meeting Hadaz, who I went with. Um, meeting her over there so so yeah I, I actually started to back off from doing too much research so that, that research almost became a negative yes it did um, <laughs> it became it became an insurmountable ob uh, objective you know there was it, it seemed to me as if there was too many things saying um, why not to go rather than why to go so on a on a karmic plane, I decided what would be would be. I would go over there, I would give it my best shot. We would take each day as it came, and it would just be a series of day trips stitched together until we got to the end of a journey. And whether that end was going to be dictated by the clock, the visa, or some natural occurrence like an earthquake um, or a tsunami, it, it, that, that would have also lent a hand. But I was at such an emotional low at that stage in my life. I wasn't I wasn't really too worried on anything was better than the emotional place that I was in at that time. All right. So what did you enjoy most about the experience? I loved the way in which it became a way of life. And I'll often say to people, you know, going away on a weekend camping trip is great in good weather. Um, going away on a two-week holiday if you like is a, a great way of dipping your toes into it but quite often these are uncomfortable experiences because you're you, you be, we become very comfortable in our surroundings so when we suddenly change those surroundings for a short-term measure it can be quite uncomfortable reloading your kayak where does everything go um, all this bed is a bit hard the sleeping bags a bit cold all of these sort of things they, they can make the short-term adventure an experience which gets lost in the adventure but I think when you go on an extended journey, and this journey was to last over a nine-month time frame, then it becomes so much more a part of you, a way of life. And that's what I really enjoyed about it. I think it was beginning to feel really at one with that coastal environment, and realising that, for instance, by the time we got 300 miles south of Tokyo Bay area, we got down to Nagoya, I think we had to get rid of about one third of our equipment. I think I, I packaged up a box to send back to a chap in Tokyo and it, it weighed about 36 pounds. You know, so that's how much excess gear I was carrying, but just was 
probably never going to be used. And it, we lived such a minimalist lifestyle while we was doing that journey. It really was a, a basic existence, but there was a certain purity and a certain joy in living such a basic existence as well. So 36 pounds, that's an awful lot of gear to jettison just 300 miles into the trip. Yeah, we had fishing rods, we had um, camp chairs. You know, I, I can remember I can remember a friend of mine buying this very expensive camp chair and sitting in it. And I, I do quite a lot of yoga, and the first time he sat in it, it collapsed. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and I said, you should just learn to sit comfortably in a cross-legged position. Your legs will stay mobile, and, and, and you'll, you know, you'll keep them strong. And, you know, sitting down in the third world squat is a really good way. It's a good posture for the body. And I think sometimes we lose that. We lose it in the gimmickry of some of the stuff that we can take away on these expeditions. And we look at all the gear. Um, when rarely we we can simplify that whole process just by remaining fairly active. So, yeah, we we got rid of a lot of um, a lot of junk that we didn't need. <laughs> so um, you mentioned you were 300 miles in at that point. What was the distance and the uh, the length of time for the trip? So it was about it was somewhere between four and a half thousand, five thousand miles. Um, we paddled through four climatic zones so in the south it's sort of subtropical in the north it's it's arctic it's not above the polar circle the arctic circle um, but the seas around Hokkaido get so cold in the winter that they freeze over so it was it was um, it was quite changeable and the fact that we left in January when there was still snow on the ground and we were still in, in the depths of winter and then we were to progress through the monsoon um, season and then into the into the typhoon season it was it was very changeable and it was very dramatic as well you know we had the big pacific ocean on the on, on one side and then we had the south china sea um the japan sea the sea of Okhotsk. um yeah it was it was an inc incredible journey and it was to last six months total 180 days of paddling took us 139 days to actually complete the journey but because we had to leave after the three-month visa ran out which was a good thing that was a blessing if that hadn't been in place we'd have run out of money so having to leave the country after three months go home earn some more money to be able to complete the journey um, and then return later on that year to complete the, to complete the journey so I think we we paddled from January February, March, we left the country early March, returned home again, and then came back at the end of the summer. And the journey was over by the end of October. So that's, um, you know, it's, it's such a, I guess I'll, I'll say a little known part of the world or little known part of the world in terms of paddling. It's just not the first destination people often think of when they think of a paddling expedition, yet it just sounds fascinating with all the climatic zones and uh, the, the diversity of the area. Yeah, the, the country is, is um, we, we know that Japan is one of the most populated, um, densely populated countries in the world. But the coastline is actually really remote. We could paddle for days without seeing anyone on the water except for the occasional fishermen. Um, there were certain areas which were more congested, but there was so much of the country was uninhabited and we would always try and find our way into a harbour at the end of the day because the sea conditions could change so rapidly. You know, the Pacific Ocean gets enormous swells. So if we were to land on beaches where we'd had to land through the surf, there was every possibility that we wouldn't be able to get off the next day. 
Whereas if we found the protection of a fishing village, which have these enormous concrete um, barriers outside of them to protect against a swell, then we knew that we was always going to be able to get afloat the next day again. So we was always looking for protection of a, of a village to stop in. Um, but these were few and far between a lot of the time. And the coastline is beautiful. It's, it's probably, with the exception of South Georgia and Northern Norway, I would say the coastline is some of the most beautiful coastline I've paddled in anywhere. So that description of the coastline is, is for me, not what I would have expected. So I'm curious, how did your expectations mismatched with, or mismatch with the reality that you ended up finding? Yeah, it was, um, I, to be fair, I, I think my expectations as a child, um, you know, I was raised up, uh, you know, on the stories of geisha girls and samurai and, you know, it was a bit of a romantic dream that I'd had as a, as a young boy. So I had those sort of expectations. They very much matched up because everywhere we went, there was signs of either the Shinto religion with the Shinto arches um, or the Buddhist religion with the temples and the monasteries and what have you. So I certainly did see those. We didn't get into the cities much at all. So I didn't see modern Japan. I saw rural Japan, rural coastal Japan with fishing villages and um, fish farms. Even down to meeting the maidens of the deep or the the army divers, the armor divers. These are the, the freehold divers that fish for, well, they fish for all sorts. They dive for all sorts of produce. Um, I'm trying to think what the shell, the shellfish, abalone is their primary catch, if you like. So we were to even meet these these people out at sea. And as we were going down the the southeast coastline where these armor divers are in in abundance if you like we would find them sometimes up to a mile two miles offshore without any support boat they, they would have just swam out from the beach with a basket and dived on the reefs for abalone so i was seeing very much what i wanted to see i think people who were very much living with nature and that was i found inspirational so tell us a little bit more about some of the other uh, the the people as or some of the people aspect of the trip. I think the people were the highlight because I can remember when I was a very young boy. You know, it wasn't I was born in 1962. There was still very much a lot of World War Two survivors, and the impression as a young man of who the Japanese people were, and they were this. Um, old enemy of Britain and America. They represented quite an evil race of uh, war criminals who had kept prisoners of war and done all sorts of heinous acts. That's what I went to Japan um, with a backdrop of, of history. But I found the total opposite when I got there. They were the most welcoming, the most friendly, the most hospitable people I've met anywhere. And although they were amongst some of the more elderly generation, no, no hostility, but maybe a reluctance to engage with us. There was certainly probably the most friendly people I've ever met anywhere. And we were welcomed into people's homes on numerous occasions. And I can remember one night in Hokkaido where we'd, we'd just paddled across the Straits of um, Shimonoseki, is it? I think it's the Straits of Shimonoseki. I oh, know, the Straits of Sugaru Kaikyo separate um, Japan from Honshu. And we'd done this very long 
open crossing to get from one island to the next. And when we arrived, we were met on the slipway just by pure chance by this lady fisherwoman. And she said, where have you come from arriving in these kayaks? And we explained and she said, oh, my husband must meet you. And he loved to drink whiskey. And I can remember sitting up until about two o'clock in the morning having this whiskey drinking match with a total stranger who I'd never be met before. Um, and for two gaijin or two foreigners to just be invited into someone's home like that is quite remarkable. And this happened on numerous occasions around the islands. The Japanese paddling community embraced us. The marina where we left from, Marina Kazazima, they asked if they could create a blog and they gave us a telephone to keep in touch with us. And they were updating that blog daily and we, created, we, we actually ended up creating and then maintaining quite a few friends and followers from that trip. Uh, I'll say it every time, people make the difference. It's every, every person I've interviewed so far that people are the differentiator. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. It's, um, it's not what you do, it's who you do it with, a, a good friend once said to me. And, and that goes for Hadaz as well. You know, Hadaz was a fantastic paddling partner. She was an incredible inspiration, um, both on and off the water, and she taught me an awful lot. She she could paddle like a banshee. She was so strong on the water. She um, she had a fantastic attitude towards life. She really wanted to embrace every adventure. And she had a very simplistic, minimalistic approach, both on a, on a very emotional, but also on a very practical scale. And she was an absolute joy and inspiration to do that journey with, as were the people we met along the way. So how did you make the connection with Hadas? So we were both working for Nigel Dennis. In, in fact, I, I was working, I was guiding at a dealer's meet in Anglesey and Hadaz had gone over to represent the company that she was working for in Israel. And we just got chatting and I said to her over a cup of tea, um, where would you most like to paddle Hadaz? And she said, Hokkaido. And I said, oh, that's the northernmost island of Japan. And she said, yeah, it's so beautiful. And she'd the previous year, I think it was, had been to the Kamchatka Peninsula with Justine Kagenban and they'd heard about Hokkaido, which lay to the south of the peninsula and how a lot of Russians like to go down there to visit because it's so beautiful. So I said, well, if you want to do the northernmost island, how do you fancy having a crack at all four of them? And she said, wow, it's a long way. And I said, well, I've got a long time on my hands. You know, I've just come out of this relationship and I was um, sort of footloose and fancy free and she just embraced it and she said if you're serious she says let's do it and I said I am serious and unbeknown to me at the time Alistair from Lendl was listening through the portal and he opened up the portal and said hey guys if you're going to go to Japan he says I'll give you paddles and then Chris Reed stuck his head through the door and said if, you, if you're going to Japan I'll give you clothing and then Nigel Dennis stuck his head through the door and says, I'll give you kayaks. And before we knew it, before the tea had even gone cold, the expedition was outfitted and um, we had all the gear ready and we just had to, we just had to put up the goods really and go and do it. Wow. So from, from that moment, how long was it between then and uh, when you were at the marina? Well, that was in, that was in September or October 2003. January 2004, we were meeting up in Narita Airport. 
So it was just a, a couple of months later, really. Wow. That's a pretty short cycle for a trip of, of 5,000 miles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think some, you know, that, that's what I say, that whole karmic experience was, um, was profound f throughout. I think the most, most evident display for me that that journey was meant to happen was actually the final day because we undertook a 5,000 mile journey where we had 180 days to complete the journey in. And we completed the journey on day 180 with only hours to spare before we had to be getting on the plane to leave. And for that to cut so fine a line on, on such a lengthy journey was, was incredible. So what were your biggest challenges on the trip? We lost a lot of weight. The, the transference of energy from what we were used to eating to what we ended up eating was one of the challenges, being able to put enough food into our bodies. We were averaging about between 30 and 40 miles a day. So we were burning a lot of cal calories. Uh, where possible, we would try and eat fresh food as much as possible. And obviously rice is a big staple in, um, in Japan. And I tend to cook on potato. And I know there's not as much energy in potato, but that's what my body burns well. And so the transferal of diet was, was, was quite difficult at first, maintaining energy levels. And also it was not knowing what was going to be at the end of the day because we didn't have accurate mapping. You can't carry it in, you can't carry enough maps for a six month journey in your kayak. So you have to come down to fairly high, large area, small detail mapping. And sometimes a lot of the villages that we came to, they weren't marked on the map. So we would just choose to stop um, where it was appropriate. But on some of the sections of coastline, we didn't know what was going to be around the next headland and we didn't have access to weather. So I was constantly using the barometer on my, I had a Sunto Vector and I would be monitoring the barometer on there to see what the scale of change was. Um, so we was always, paddling almost like on the edge of our comfort zone and that creates a high energy burn in your calories so it was it was like living right on the edge of survival all the time on a, on an emotional scale and i think that made us made us um, burn a lot more energy as well i imagine that the uh you know, that, that, that creates a little bit of stress but it probably adds some positive to that karmic experience as well yeah we learned so much you know we learned so much about each other um, we l really learned how to depend upon that person who's with you um, for emotional support as well as the physical practical support. Um, I can remember when we when we set off to do that crossing between Honshu and Hokkaido and I'd contacted Paul Caffin in New Zealand. He, he, I think he was the only other person to have paddled around Japan. I think possibly at that time or since. And we said to him, because the tides there's, there's a current, uh, I think it's a Tsushima current, could be the Okotsk current, that com comes down the, the west coast of Japan and it floods through this gap. And I think it floods pretty much continuously at about six knots. And it's always going from west to east. That meant that if we just went to the top of the island and tried to paddle straight across, it would wash us through, it flushes through to the Pacific Ocean side very quickly. So we left a much further down 
and we struck off a course towards almost North Korea. Um, so we were pretty much paddling west to go north because we knew we had this massive amount of flow on us. And we had a typhoon which had just gone through and that had kicked up some very big swell. And we had a phone call from Tokyo, um, a chap called Edward Phillips, who was supporting us. He would ring us up when we had a signal and tell us what the weather was doing. And he said there was another typhoon that was pushing up from the south that was about three days away. So we were hemmed in by these two enormous low pressure systems. And I can remember going down to this small headland called, I think it was called Notahanto. It could have been, no, Notahanto was on the east side. Anyway, we'd gone down to this small headland and I said to her dad, oh, it doesn't, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. You know, we, we don't know how strong the tide's gonna be. We can't work out any vectors. And she said, you know what, Jeff? She says, it feels right. It just feels right. My gut instinct is that today God's smiling on us and I think we should go. And we just set off on a total whim, started paddling across just due west and we had about a 25 mile crossing. The gap is actually only about 12 miles wide, but because we'd left much, so much further down the coastline to account for this tide, we actually en ended up pushing quite a long way up the west coast of Hokkaido, picking up a big back eddy that, that fed us up the coastline. I can just remember this total, to total attachment to it felt right, so she went on faith alone almost and um, that gave me an awful lot of strength in in understanding that sometimes you've just got to do it because your gut instinct tells you that it can be done although it was gut instinct that gut instinct had a long foundation we'd been at sea by this stage for four months we'd got to know the japan coastline we'd got to know the japan um, weather systems and we'd got to know each other by that time we were feeling pretty pretty strong, strong in the boats, but also strong in the partnership and the dependence upon each other as well. Now, uh, you had some some environmental challenges, uh, earthquakes, typhoons, 20 plus meter swells, uh, some large crossings. Tell us about those challenges. So the, the typhoons that, that year, they had, um, they had almost 20 typhoons come through from Southeast Asia, pushing up through Japanese waters. Um, we got hit by four typhoons, directly hit by typhoons. We were never on the water when the wind hit us, but we certainly felt the um, the effects of the swell. They say that um, the swell will radiate out from the Philippines and you'll feel it four days before the wind arrives. So we were sometimes the first indicator that we had big wind coming was the change in the wave action. The swells would start to deepen, they would start to increase in wave period so I can remember going up the east coast one day when we left in the morning and it was totally flat um, no swell no wind glassy seas and by late afternoon we was in six meter six meter swells and we tried to tried to land in several fishing villages but the swells were so big they had such a high volume in the water that they were just bombarding the coastline and the surf would have been just way too way too big to land safely so we ended up having to push on into the night into the dark and we eventually found we, we saw the lights of this village um, which was sort of glistening between the swell and what what appeared to be some islands and we managed to work our way in um, but between us 
was a reef and I can remember sort of seeing this black corridor down through these enormous breaking waves and we paddled down this black corridor knowing that obviously it was it was um, kind of like a safe highway if you like it was a, a route through this reef but we had enormous seas going off on both the left and the right side and we gingerly pulled our way into this into this small fishing village and just as we was coming into the harbour there was a fisherman re-securing his, his boat on the pontoons and he he came running over to us and said, oh, you can't go out, you can't go out. We've got a big big storm coming. And uh, we said, oh, we're coming in. You know, and it was about, it was about 11 o'clock at night. He straight away said, oh, we've got a massive storm coming. He, he spoke pretty good English. And he said, you must come with me. My sister has a hotel. And they put us up in a hotel. <laughs> you, you couldn't ask for a, a better stroke of luck. And we, we had these on numerous occasions, these stroke of, you know, absolute strokes of luck where the perfect outcome would suddenly manifest itself at the end of a very harsh period of, of paddling, if you like. Now, I, I understand you had some earthquakes you were dealing with as well. Yeah, we, we, was, um, we was on a city, it was in Nagata on the on the Japan seaside, on, on the west coast of Japan, and we, we got hit by a typhoon there. And then we paddled up and around the top of Hokkaido, and we was over on the west side of Honshu. We'd crossed over to Sendai, and or we'd crossed over to Honshu, and we'd paddled down to Sendai. And just as we was paddling around this headland, and this was the Notohanto headland I was talking about earlier, just as we was paddling around this headland, we got hit by an earthquake. Um, which its epicenter was in Niigata on the other side, the place which had been hit by this typhoon. And first of all, we saw this landslide. It just came down, half a mountain came down the side of a um, side of a mountain, sort of fell into the sea and totally obliterated the road and whatever was on the road. And then we got all of these kind of willy wars changes in the in the weather systems just started to spin up, and we had these kind of tiny little low pressure systems just manifest themselves on the water and we didn't realize that it was an earthquake at the time we'd just seen this landslide and we associated it as a landslide but then as we were paddling around Notohanto we had some very strange wave action where we I was paddling ahead of Hadaz she was maybe 20 meters behind me and a breaking wave started to peel in towards us uh, it was maybe like the kind of wave that you break out off the beach. It was a surf zone size wave, you know, maybe one and a half, two meters coming coming in towards us. And I turned to Hadaz to say, look at that wave. And there was one coming in from behind us as well. And what happened was a, a wave uh, had wrapped itself around an offline island and we were caught in the middle of both waves. And they weren't big tsunami waves. They were... I think seismic ripples. It was some. It was an effect from this tsunami which had happened over on the west west coast of Japan. But we punched through this wave and um, we looked behind us, and where both waves met, they, there was this big, very sort of um, stupendous, clapotic clapping action of of water. And for wow, that's very strange. So we pulled over onto a, a nearby beach and. I turned the phone on that I had and there was no signal so I climbed to the top of a, a nearby hill, turned the phone on and the phone instantly rang and it was my mother 
I, I thought it's only sort of one o'clock in the afternoon. It's got to be about one o'clock in the morning back home in the UK. Why is my mum ringing me now? And she'd woken up. Mum's gut instinct had woken her up and she was checking on her son. And she'd turned on the news and it said that this big earthquake had just hit into Niigata. And she was worried, so she'd rung me up. I said, oh, Mum, I says, I've we've just seen this horrendous sort of landslide and experience these strange weather systems, weather conditions. Not sure what it is. And she said, well, there's just been a big earthquake. That's why I'm ringing you. So, yeah, that was very strange. And then we paddled on down into Sendai, uh, which is obviously now um, very famous for the more monumental-sized tsunami and earthquake that they had in, in later years. And I can remember... We stayed in their clubhouse, which was right on the beach. And obviously, uh, when Sendai got hit by that, that big earthquake, that, that wouldn't have lasted any longer. I'm not sure how many people, how many people from that kayak club would have survived that effect. They certainly wouldn't have survived it if they'd have been in the, in the vicinity of their kayak clubhouse. Yeah, that would have all been wiped away. But now I think there's an exclusion zone around that area. I don't think you can actually go in close to the city because of the fallout from from the um, power station that obviously ruptured its um, its tanks. So knowing what you know now, what would you do different with the trip? I don't think I would change anything. I don't think I would have changed anything. It felt as if we was um, breaking new ground um, quite often. I, you know, I went on to paddle around the Scandinavian peninsula using roadmaps, not really knowing quite where I'm going to be at the end of the day. Did the same in Ireland. Um, I think you can overplan and overprepare for these adventures. I think having really good core skills, and obviously you've got to know how to read a map and navigate, and you've got to understand tidal flow. But I think too many people make it an academic exercise. And I think if you're going out for one month, you can afford to carry enough navigation equipment and what have you with you to negotiate a small section of coastline and you can work out the tides and what have you. But when you're paddling on a day-to-day -day basis and you want to get into a routine where you might be getting up at half six, breaking camp by half seven, paddling until half five, getting off the water and setting up camp, you want that daily routine to exist for it to become a way of life. And I think that's what I've missed in some of my later expeditions was just how much it felt a real journey, a groundbreaking journey. And it's the expedition that I've, I've sort of assessed every other expedition by, and I'm, I'm sad to say, and I think sometimes we are always trying to recapture certain moments in our life. None of my expeditions since Japan have ever quite met what I achieved on that expedition what we achieved on that expedition, because it wasn't a solo venture. But I know from my own personal experience, and I think that's what I'm relating to, you know, it was such a, um, it was such a formulative experience for me, and it was such a healing journey as well from experiences that I'd had in the military and experiences that I'd had in my personal life. I think it was such a healing journey. It was, it was a very memorable event. I've heard that same similar advice, at least, about don't overplan and make an expedition a true expedition uh, before. So, yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, so you've talked a lot about the karmic experience. Tell us about the emotional impact that the trip had on you. I can, I, I can remember at the end, 
breaking down into tears when I eventually got back home and I think that was um, information overload. I'd, we'd gone from the final night of the expedition, I can remember paddling down the coastline and we had, we were very tired, we'd been pushing and pushing to try and get back to Tokyo before our visas ran out so we'd, we were physically drained. We'd been hit quite hard by sea fog off the Chiba coastline so it made more sense to paddle at night time and I can remember a big electrical storm going off out to the east of us out in the Pacific Ocean and it was very raw it was a very vital experience and then within 12 hours of that experience I was on a plane jetting my way back to the UK you know going into Narita airport going on the, on the train to Narita Airport, suddenly sitting in the cramped confines of an aeroplane and then getting off in Heathrow and being met by, by my family, it was a total different shift. And, you know, emotionally, I, 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 it all just came out. And I think there was a lot of anxiety as to whether we were going to be able to complete the journey because of the, the whole time scale. Um, so I think that stress unloaded itself. So... The end was very remarkable. It was very emotional, sorry. At the beginning, the emotions that I had were, I need to break this journey down. It's too big. And I couldn't imagine paddling four and a half, five thousand miles, you know. So, but I, I knew I could manage to do 20 miles at the end of the first day, you know. So I had to break it down for me into small day-to-day -day journeys. What's going to be possible today? What's the wind doing? What's, what's the sea state? You know, how far do I think we can go today? So it was all about breaking it down into small, more easily managed and obtainable objectives. The journey along the way, we had the rise and fall of, of emotions. I saw Hadaz at her most noble and her least noble. I saw the very best of Hadaz and not the worst, I don't think I'd necessarily have seen the worst, but I think that one of the great privileges of being on an expedition is that you see people very raw. You know that nature, stress, being close to survival parameters strips away a lot of the bull that surrounds people's lives. And I know that on an extended journey, there's when I was in the military, they used to say that you can't hide in the jungle. The jungle will strip away whatever plastic elements there are to your nature. It will be stripped away and a real person will be exposed. And I think that's exactly the same on an expedition, certainly of one of that duration and of that close to um, that dividing line between surviving and potentially not surviving, having those life-threatening, life-changing experiences. You see the person stripped back and that was a, that was a real honour to see that in Hadaz and I think she probably also witnessed the very best and the very worst in me. She would have seen me at times when I was scared, when I was afraid, when I wanted to be at home, when I was feeling lonely, separated from my children. She would have seen all of those emotional changes and what they brought with them. And she would also have seen me at my very best, you know, after a great day of happy paddling, having negotiated a long section of coastline in advanced conditions, you know, having to, um, you know, so you, you see people at their absolute best and absolute worst on an expedition. And, 
you know, I, for me, I'm, ever go- I'm only ever going to sing Hadaz's praises because even though I, I maybe saw things that I wouldn't always like, I understand the nature of the journey is such that it does remove these things and you have to be able to live with the unpalatable. You know, she's an amazingly beautiful woman. She's an amazingly inside and outside. And I really sort of appreciated her making that journey with me. It was an incredible experience. That's wonderful. It's uh, it's quite an experience and quite quite a collection of learnings. So Yeah, without a doubt. So Jeff, uh, tell us a little bit about the equipment that you used on the trip. So we used um, we used Lendl paddles. They were the old Scottish Lendl paddles, kinetic touring paddles, and they were provided by Alistair Marianne um, up in Scotland. And then we used reed chill cheetah clothing. With um, we had we had some palm equipment as well. Um, they gave us a buoyancy aid and an overcag. Um, we used Nigel Dennis explorers. We used a, a Van Gogh storm-free tent. They don't make it anymore, but it was a, a freestanding tent. We managed to break every pole section. We managed to rip it in numerous places. It lasted the expedition, and then we, we left it for someone over there. Uh, oh, no, I think Hadaz took it home. We were going to leave it for someone over there, but no, it was a really nice tent. We used snug pack um, sleeping bags, I think. I think I'm pretty sure that's what I used, snug pack sleeping bags. The equipment was all all good, all fit for purpose. You mentioned the explorers. Uh, were they multi-part, uh, multi-piece, or, or how did you get them there? So um, used a, we had a, co- a company called Connections World Cargo. They shipped them over for us. And before I used the Nigel Dennis kayaks, we were offered kayaks by North Shore. Um, I was going to use a North Shore Buccaneer, which is... Um, a really good expedition kayak, but quite slow. Um, it's a chine, uh, single chine kayak. I was going to use those because North Shore were already established in in um, Japan, and they had kayaks out there for us to use. But Nigel offered me support, and at the time he also offered to get the kayaks over to Japan, which would have it would have helped us out enormously. One financially, and two logistically, we wouldn't have had to afford about that. Valley had a, had a container that used to go over to Japan regularly and he was going to try and get our kayaks on their container. Um, but this fell through at the last minute and I'd already given, given away the sponsorship that I had from North Shore. I'd, I'd said to them, no, I've now been sponsored by Nigel and we're going to take Explorers. So it all started getting a little bit hit and miss as to whether we could get the kayaks there. So um, we managed to get in touch with a company in Exeter and they offered to do it for 50%. It was still, it still cost us more than the kayaks were worth to get us, to get the kayaks over there. I think we paid about £2,000 to get the kayaks transported over there. We should have used three pieces, but I don't think Nigel was making the three piece kayak at the time. Um, but we managed to get them over there. They wrapped two kayaks up in one, put it into a wooden box and stuck it on a, on a plane, got it sent over to Narita. And then they were shipped to the coast from there. And, you know, the Explorer is a great, great kayak. It's, um, I've moved on now, and now I use the Rockpool Taran. Um, I wanted something faster in the end, but the, I, 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 at the time, I never thought I would need to use another kayak, but the Explorer was really fit for purpose. It's a fantastic rough water kayak. It's a great expedition kayak. 
it was certainly fit for purpose and comfortable but I after a while I started you know when you're on an expedition you reflect about a lot of things and I was always thinking to myself if I was to do this journey again what would I change about this kayak and I can remember thinking I don't like sitting like a frog in a kayak you know with my legs splayed out to the side and the front end of this cockpit is just a little bit too narrow so I'd widen that so I could have my knees together and, and shift my leg position so I actually bent my legs out of shape after six months I'd I had a totally um, erupted sort of muscle chain running down from my legs where I'd been forced to sit like a frog in, in a kayak for such long periods of time so I, I was thinking what changes would I make and then when I got back to the UK I found that Mike Webb who founded Rockpool he'd felt exactly the same thing and the synergy was obvious to to shift over kayaks really and now I paddle a, a kayak that has a much more central located knee position and has a bit more speed potential because I like it's not that I like to paddle fast I like to paddle efficiently and if I can cover 30 miles of coastline using less energy then I'll always choose that option you know it gives you sort of energy in reserve for when you need it but yeah it was a great kayak it was certainly fit for purpose we were knocking out you know 40 50 mile days we did a um, one 60 mile open crossing you know so the boat is certainly fit for purpose but I chose to move on for comfort reasons really so Jeff you've got another expedition coming up a sailing and paddling trip plan tell us a little bit about that one so back in the 1930s a, a, a British explorer called Gino Watkins was on expedition on, on the east coast of Greenland and um, I don't know exactly how he lost his life, but they think it was probably he was out of his kayak and he was um, maybe making adjustments and a glacier carved into the water and potentially washed him and his kayak into the sea and he was sadly lost. Um, Gina Watkins seemed to be the natural successor to Scott and Shackleton at that time and he was he was fated as being the explorer of our times and he met his untimely death and to many British sea kayakers Gino Watkins was seen as being the father of modern day sea kayaking as a sort of um, 1930s explorer he was quite unique in so much as he embraced the ways the techniques and the habits of the Inuit the indigenous people of Greenland he embraced their, their, their techniques and their knowledge and he taught himself or he was taught to paddle a skin on frame kayak and he would hunt seal to, to feed the expedition and that had all the attributes of a Nansen, you know, the Norwegian explorer who was willing to learn from the local population. He didn't go there with this Victorian mentality of overcoming um, the environment. He was very much working with the environment. So he's been a he's been a popular hero of mine since I was a young man. So we're going to go and retrace his journey. He sailed from he sailed from Britain to the Faroe Islands, and then from the Faroe Islands to Iceland, and then from Iceland to the east coast of Greenland to Kangalusuak Fjord, and then on up into what is now named Watkins Fjord. And he was researching airstrips to service for Pan American route for um, flights crossing the Atlantic back in the 1930s. They need to refuel um, regularly when he was lost. 
Um, his body was never found, but for me, the expedition, one, is going to give me the opportunity to explore a remote part of a planet. Um, and I've always loved that area where the mountains meet the ocean. Many explorers and kayakers, adventurers who I've met in northern Norway, which is an area that's very similar to that, where the mountains come straight down into the ocean, they've said to me, if you think this is beautiful, you should go to East Greenland. It's magnificent. You know, so I've wanted to visit that area for a long, long time. And it's going to give me the opportunity of retracing the route of this 1930s polar explorer who lost his life so sadly and so early. He was, he was still only in his 20s when he died. It's a bit of a pilgrimage. I'm starting to, well, I'm 58 now. You know, the clock ticks on by. And we always ask ourselves as we're getting older, how many more adventures have I got in me? And I want to achieve this one before I'm, before I'm too old to carry on with my adventures. So I've started doing a lot more sailing last year or earlier this year. Sorry, um, I took a uh, I took a yacht which I purchased primarily for these expeditions, um, which is a 39 foot steel yacht. Um, we took it up to Shetland. We put a couple of kayaks on board and we sailed up the east coast of Ireland, across to Scotland, and then around Cape Wrath and across to the Orkneys, Shetland, primarily to prototype uh, whether we could carry all the gear on board, launch a kayak successfully and, and navigate and, and work as a team. So this is the expedition that I'm working towards now. I call it In the Wake of Geno Watkins. And then when we get to um, the east coast of Greenland, the idea is to push further north to Jan Mayen Island and then across the Norwegian Sea, hopefully finishing the journey in Tromsø, northern Norway, where I'm hoping to winter, winter up, Covid dependent, and maybe work up there for a, a season before sailing on the following year. So when, do you, uh, when are you expecting to head out? We're hoping to depart... Um, spring 2021 i've got a couple of weeks work in ireland and a week of guiding to do in scotland in march and april so we're looking at departing the end of april and starting to work our way to the pharaohs where we'll explore the pharaohs by sea kayak and sail and then sail on to iceland and explore those northwest and northern fjords of iceland once again by kayak and sail and then we'll head over to greenland we need to be in greenland for um, end of June, going into July. And uh, do you have a, a group that you're taking the expedition with? So with me, there's a lady called Isabel Howells, who has been guiding on the east coast of Greenland for the last four years. Um, she's been working on some of the cruise ships and some of the sailing ships up there. She's a, a yacht master um, qualified sailor. She brings a, a wealth of experience and she's going to be looking after Wild Rover, which is the name of the yacht. She's going to be looking after Wild Rover while I go into Watkins Fjord to try and find um, Gina Watkins Base Camp. And we've got um, we've got several volunteers that have, have put their names forward to accompany us on the, on the journey. But yeah, still looking for those last two people to join us. We have got one local lady who's expressed an interest who lives on the east coast of Greenland. Yeah, still open to a couple more people joining us. Well, we've got listeners worldwide. Maybe there's somebody that has some information that can help you or uh, ways to support your trip. That's brilliant, brilliant. We're still looking for sponsors on in certain areas as well. The, 
Um, expedition has, has already cost just getting the boat together and, and outfitting the boat. Uh, it's been quite a financial drain, especially in these COVID times when earnings have obviously been affected quite badly. So we are still looking for sponsors and product support as well. So in addition to that expedition and, uh, and Japan, you've got a lot of expeditions that you've done uh, around the world and have become uh, quite the, the rough water and incident management specialist. So, uh, Jeff, how could listeners reach you to learn more about those types of things? Um, yeah, if they wanted to contact me for training, um, email is probably the best, um, info at expeditionpaddler.com or on normal social media channels, um, Facebook and Instagram. Um, I use those for sort of communicating and marketing purposes. So Jeff Allen Kayaker or Expedition Paddler. And um, I've just opened up a, another account for Wild Rover Expeditions. So hopefully people can follow the expedition on that Instagram account, Wild Rover Expeditions, um, both Instagram and Facebook. Well, I will make certain that I'll have uh, links in the show notes to those social media outlets and the Wild Rover Expedition. Thank you ever so much. Absolutely. So, Jeff, one final question that I uh, ask all my, all my guests here, and that is, Jeff, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? Um, years ago, just as I was, I was starting to plan the Japan expedition, uh, it, was, it was about a couple of months before, I started to plan a, a South Georgia circumnavigation with a chap called Sean Morley. Sean and I, we never managed to make that trip together, but I can remember paddling with Sean. We, we'd never paddled together before, and I asked him if I could join his expedition to do South Georgia at the time, and he said, yeah, come along and we'll go for a paddle, Jeff. And we went out from a place called La Morna on the south coast of Cornwall and paddled west and went around Longships. And then we went from Longships into a small fishing town called, fishing village called Senan. And Sean was paddling this notoriously tippy kayak called an Inuk, um, which is a very sort of tippy racing style sea kayak. And he probably gave me one of the finest displays of kayak handling I've ever seen. And um, I remember that day, it sort of really inspired me to change the whole way in which I paddled. I was very much a straight line, stay well offshore kind of paddler. Um, it gave me one of the most inspirational days on the water. And sadly, that South Georgia trip fell through and he paddled around um, Great Britain and, and I ended up paddling around Japan. Sean is probably one of the most inspirational sea kayakers I've, I've come across. And if you can get him to share some of his stories, um, I'm sure one would be worth listening to and two people would learn an enormous amount from his skill and expertise. Yeah, Sean Morley without a doubt. Well, Sean's a pretty amazing paddler and uh, a good person as well. So I will definitely reach out to him and we'll look forward to getting Sean on the show. So, Lovely. Jeff, this has been fascinating. I've really loved learning about not only the trip itself, but the emotional and the karmic impact that it's had on you the, the, and it's all the learnings from it. So I really appreciate you joining me today. I absolutely wish you the, the best on the Wild Rover Expedition, and we'll look forward to following that as well. John, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, 
Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit PaddlingExercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. I love the personal impact this expedition had on Jeff. He certainly has come a long way since breaking out of the surf on that pink inflatable crocodile. In addition to the beauty of the people and the remote landscape that Jeff shared, I personally like the effect this trip had on his outlook towards simplifying gear, simplifying expedition planning, and really simplifying life. I also appreciate his advice to plan appropriately, but not so much that it takes the the adventure out of the expedition. It's going to be fun to follow the Wild Rover expedition, so be sure to check that out. I'll have links to the expedition and to Jeff's other contact information in the show notes. Our next guest is going to join us from Ottawa, Ontario, and we're going to talk to Stig Larson. Stig is the president and co-founder of Level 6, and we're going to talk to him about his time on the World Cup slalom circuit and what it was like to travel the world as a 20-something and how Level 6 got its name. Cool story. Be sure to stick around for that one and more. We've also got some audience participation fun that's planned for you, so we'll share that as well. Don't miss our next episode with Stig Larson. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.